0: Well good morning, it's certainly a privilege to be able to uh, share with you from God's word this morning. Um, If you've been following along in the church's two year reading plan, then you're in First Chronicles and Psalms. So if you don't know anything about that, then um, there's an app, you go on to, uh, I only know this because I asked Brittany, Go on to what's the Apple for Apple App Store or Google Play Store, and you just put Blue Ridge Bible Church, and there's an app with Blue Ridge Bible Church name. It's I don't know how you guys did that. That's pretty amazing. Um, and then on there, just look reading, and then a PDF pops up, um, and then you can follow along. I don't. I think if you haven't been doing it, you can just jump jump right in. But if you have, then you've been doing First Chronicles. Um, and in First Chronicles, I'm sure you're fully aware that the first nine chapters are genealogies. Um, I apologize for what I'm about to say, but I really, I was looking at those, I really enjoyed them. Um, um, I could actually preach a two-hour sermon right now just on those, and, and I'm not messing. Um, so I'm not, don't worry, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, What what I'd like to do is pick up at chapter 10, which I think is Monday's chapter, uh, 1 Chronicles 10. That's where where the narrative starts. Now, uh, 1 Chronicles 10 is about Saul, and he's a bad example. And we learn a lot from bad examples, don't we? Uh, Justin spoke a few weeks ago on 1 Samuel 13. Uh, If you're here for that, if you weren't, you can go online and listen to that. It's actually a really good message to listen to. Um, I'm not actually going to spend too much time on Saul. What I'd like to do this morning is take the bad example of Saul and try and flip it. And say, what I mean by that is, take a look at what Saul got wrong and say, well, how do we do that right? Um, So that's that's what I'd like to do this morning. And in order to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go from 1 Chronicles 10 to 1 John 2. So the Epistle of John, that's right at the end of your Bible, uh, verses 3 to 6. But we'll start with 1 Chronicles 10. That's where we're, so we're going to start. And um, I'm going to go put that on the screen. Um, I'm just going to read it. I figure as long as I read Scripture, I've got something right. So um, I'll go ahead and read that. So 1 Chronicles 10, beginning, and i put it on the screen. I realize... If you wanna actually follow on with what I'm reading, I've put my translation on the screen so you can, But you're welcome to look at your own Bible. Uh, It says, now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, Saul's sons, Uh, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest uh, these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Then Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, uh, sorry, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead. He also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Okay, so if you're reading Chronicles, you probably notice that a lot of what's in Chronicles is also in first and second Samuel or first and second Kings. So this account is in first Samuel 31. Um, the Israelites are defeated in Mount Gilboa. If you look on a map, that's right next to the Valley of Jezreel, just south of the Sea of Galilee. Saul's followed. His sons are killed. He's hit by the archers, actually by an arrow. Uh, then he tells his armor bearer to finish him off. Finish him off. He won't, and so he falls on his own sword. On his own sword. And when the people see that Saul's dead, they forsake their cities and flee. The Philistines come, inhabit their cities. Right. So that's the first uh, seven verses, verses eight to ten. It um, says, So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land to the Philist- of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor uh, in the temple of their gods and fastened his head. The temple of Dagon. Perhaps that's why we get the idea of you know you're a Philistine. You know I mean it's not it doesn't sound it sounds a bit gruesome, doesn't it? Uh, so they take his body, they put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they put his head in the temple of Dagon. What Samuel tells us, if you look in First Samuel thirty one, is they hung his body on the wall in Beth Shan. So then you get to the next two verses, eleven and twelve. It says, when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under Tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Uh, So the valiant men uh, get the the bodies of Saul and his sons. Now, these last two verses, this is where I really want to focus, okay? Because it says here in verses 13 and 14, it says, so Saul died... For his unfaithfulness, which he had uh, committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he he consulted a medium for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse." Now what you'll notice, you know, if, if you want to figure out you know, which bits go with which in Samuel and Chronicles, if you've got a reference Bible, usually it'll tell you, and so you can compare. And if there's no, if there's no reference to Samuel or Kings, it's probably because it's unique to Chronicles. Okay? This is unique to Chronicles, these two verses. You don't see it in Samuel. Um, and, it, and it's kind of like a, a commentary by the writer of Chronicles, And so it's good, as you're continuing through Chronicles, I would encourage you to do that. Look for what's different in Chronicles, look for what's not in Samuel, what's not in Kings, and also notice how he's arranging it. You know, as I've been spending time in Chronicles, I realize Chronicles is not a history book. It's a bit like the Gospel accounts. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They are historically accurate, but the writers are arranging and selecting material to make a point. And that's what the writer of Chronicles is doing. I'm not going to spend time on that because I know Jack's covered that. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, chapter 12, I don't think, is in Chron- uh, Samuel or Kings. Chap- all chapters 22, all the way through to 29, is not in there either. So you know, pay attention to that as, as you're reading through. Um, but these verses in 13 and 14, this is where I want to kind of, uh, kind of focus. It's the, uh, the, the commentary that the writer of Chronicles gives us, which we don't find anywhere else, else. Saul died for his unfaithfulness. That's a pretty strong statement. So you think, okay, so what did he do wrong? The writer of Chronicles says, first, he did not keep the word of God, the word of the Lord. And second, he consulted a medium for guidance, not the Lord. That's interesting, that whole situation there. Now, this is the only chapter in Chronicles we have on Saul. So he's not going to expand on it. He's not going to tell us any more about these two things. So either we need to know what's in Samuel, or we need to go ahead and look it up. And now, if you do that, if you go ahead and look it up, you know, we know there's at least two times where Saul did not keep the word of the Lord. The first one is in 1 Samuel 13, which Justin spoke on a few weeks ago, where Saul didn't wait you know, he was supposed to wait for Samuel, and he didn't wait. He offered the burnt offering himself. The next one is in 1 Samuel 15, We didn't keep the word of the Lord. God said, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. What did he do? He kept the king of Amalek alive and the sheep. Do you remember that when you read Samuel? What is this bleating I hear, said Samuel, and uh, Justin said this a few weeks ago, you know, obedience, partial obedience is not obedience, is it? You know, maybe you're reading through this stuff and you're thinking, Oh, why am I reading this? Hopefully you're not. I guarantee you though, if you have a conversation with someone who is not only a non-believer but an aggressive atheist, they're not gonna take you on on the New Testament. They're going to go to the Old Testament and they may pick that Amalekite passage. That's, that's where they go, where God says, go and utterly destroy them. That is very contrary to our culture. And so you, if you're going to take on an aggressive atheist, that's, that's probably where they're going to come at you. So it is worth reading. It is worth having an answer. What I'd like to do this morning, though, is take Paul's negative example. You know, he did not keep... The word of the Lord, and I want to flip it and say, "Okay, well, what does it look like to keep the word of the Lord? How do we do that? What does that even mean?" And to do that, we're going to go to First John uh, chapter two. So that's all the way to the other end of your Bibles. First um, John two, three to six. So I'm going to read those verses now. I have them on the screen. It says there in First John two. Now, by this we know that we know Him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, or himself, to walk just as he walked. I'm so pleased that Tom picked that song, Abide in me. Um, so we're jumping from Saul's bad example of not keeping the word of God and we're asking the question what does it look like to keep the word of God how do we do that what does that even mean and maybe you already know the answer but just stay with me for a little bit because it may not be the answer you're initially thinking of now with these verses what I'm going to suggest to you is that John is describing an outward expression of an inward condition Okay. He's describing an outward expression of an inward condition. The outward expression, you know, what does it look like? Is our walking as Christ walked. Now if we go straight there, we're not going to make it. It's not going to work. We need to start with the inward condition that leads to that outward expression. And the inward condition is abiding in Christ. And that's perhaps the main theme of 1 John. Now the impression I get from First John is that this abiding with Christ—it's like a cycle or a rotation. I'm trained as an engineer, so we like to draw things, and we don't do pretty drawings; we do ugly drawings that are technical. So there you go. Um, that's the impression I get. It's like a cycle. It's like a rotation, which is what I've tried to represent. But I want to stress because. You know, if you're going to pick apart my picture, I know it's got problems. It's not inspired or errant. What I want to stress is that this know, which it's straight from the passage, this idea of knowing, keeping, loving, they're not necessarily distinct things. They kind of mesh together. Nor are they necessarily in that order. You know, we love him. We keep his word, we know him, we love him, we keep his word, we know him. So imagine this cycle, as we revolve our lives around Christ, that is the cycle or the rotation or the revolution that we go through and it's not three distinct things. It's what we experience. We love him, we know him, we keep his word. And those three things cannot exist independently of each other. They have to go together and they've got to be all surrounding Christ as we revolve our lives around Christ. Let's look at this a little close, more closely. Verses 3 and 4, it says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So what's John saying? A couple of key words we need to understand. The first one is keep. Used here twice. Translated, you know, keep. It's literally to God. Don't gloss over this one. To God. I'm going to show my nationality now as I illustrate this. Think about a goalkeeper. Goalkeeper. Goal, keeper, right? What's his job? I mean, you don't need to be a soccer player to know this. He's guarding the goal, right? He's keeping the ball out of the goal. And that's what this this word very literally means, to keep, to guard. And, but as you think about what it takes to guard, as you take, think about what it takes to keep, you realize there's more to it than just standing there like... Like that guy, if he stays like that the whole time, you just put it right past him, right? So when you look up this word, if you look it up in your Greek lexicon, if you've got one, um, it, says, it says it means to keep in view, to take note, to watch over, to attend to carefully. Now think about it. Imagine you're a goalkeeper, right? If you start looking at Facebook while you're in goal, well, you're not a very good goalkeeper, If you start picking daisies, you're not a good goalkeeper. If you run up the field trying to score a goal, you're not a very good goalkeeper. So we take that understanding of keep and apply it to the text here, to keeping Christ's commandments. And we're thinking keeping Christ's commandments. Think about a goalkeeper, a good goalkeeper, not a rubbish goalkeeper. One who's paying attention, one who's alert. He knows what's going on in the game. He's familiar with the rules. You don't need to be familiar with the rules to understand that, in case you don't play soccer. Or... What I'm trying to get across, keeping the commandments is more than obeying them. Do you see that? Being a goalkeeper is more than standing the goal. To obey Christ's commandments, that's surely part of it, but it's not it. So before we try to understand the depth and the breadth of what it means to keep the commandments of Christ, I want to take a look at another word there. Know. Not the two-year-old know, the adult know. K-N-O-W. Know. Right? Think about this. What do I need to know In order to keep Christ's commandments. What do I need to know in order to keep Christ's commandments? John simply says, him. Amen? Know Christ. But what about Christ do I need to know? What does it mean to know Christ and what does it mean to keep his commandments? Now we have Saul as a negative example, don't we? but he isn't the only one. We have plenty to pick from. We can probably look at ourselves. Think about Eve in the Garden of Eden. God had told Adam, don't eat from that tree. Adam conveyed that message to Eve. Eve did not obey. Why not? Think about this. and I'm going to say this in a strange way, totally on purpose. Okay? It's not just because I'm English. I'm doing it on purpose. Okay. In what way did Eve not keep or not keep the commandment, meaning she did not obey it? In what way did she keep or not keep the commandment, meaning she didn't obey it? Now think about the the goalkeeper again, you know, the the soccer player, the goalkeeper, right? If you're ever playing soccer and you're playing at a decent level, people can actually kick the ball. Someone who's shooting at the goal He's going to try and put it in one of the corners, either one of the top corners, one of the bottom corners. He's not going to pass it to your feet. He's trying to get the ball past you. And you don't know where it's going. That's why you stand like this, because you're ready to jump. Either way or down to the ground. Eve didn't obey. But was that because she wasn't keeping the commandment? Think about a goalkeeper, alert, aware, watching what was happening, knowing, understanding. Now, hopefully you got that in your head. Think about now keeping and knowing that John's saying here, and do you see how they go together? Keeping the commandments, keeping the word of God, knowing they go together. So let's think about it, what it means to keep the commandments. Go back to Eve Think about it. what did Eve say? Or sorry, what did Satan say to Eve? He said, "God's lying. You won't die." Right? Then he says, "God knows if you eat from that tree, you'll become like him," and implied, "Oh, God doesn't want you to be like him." Do you see? Eve had to know God to keep His commandments. Her disobedience came from her not keeping his commandments. And the same can be true of us. If we don't keep the commandments, we don't keep the word, we won't obey it. And so we have to ask ourselves another awkwardly worded question. What about me? What about you? What, who, how do we know in order to keep the commandments, in order to keep his word? So that we're not, so that we are obedient. You think about that. And John gives an indication of what the answer is in, uh, in verse 4. This idea of knowing Christ, keeping his commandments. He says, actually I don't need to go forward. i do I go back? Um, he says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That's a hard one, isn't it? Maybe just me, maybe, this is just me, no one else like this, done something wrong, something sinful, you go to the Lord, oh Lord, I love you, meh, meh. I, I, uh, what are you going to say, if you knew me, you'd keep my commandments, Well, oh Lord, I don't know you, because I'm not keeping your commandments, I'm not keeping your word, we can lie to ourselves, right, if we think about our relationship with God, we can lie to ourselves, a little bit Hard. If we're not obeying Christ, how can we be keeping his commandments? We're not keeping them. Obeying and keeping are not the same. But if we do keep, if we do keep his word, his commandments, we will obey. And John says, if we're not keeping his commandments, we can't claim to know him. And he's talking to believers here. So people jump off this with this. He's talking to believers, people are saved. Not a salvation issue. That's not to say it's unimportant. Just It's not about whether a person is saved or not. So we, as believers, saved, born again, indwelled, justified, forgiven. If we don't keep Christ's commandments, we don't really know him. And it's not a salvation issue. He's just saying, you don't really know me. And then we have to ask the question, what does he mean by that? Know him. He says, because the truth is not in you. The truth is not in us. Do you see where he's going? You see why I've jumped to this passage based on the two-year reading plan? <laughs> the truth is not in us. Why are the elders, why are the Jack, why are they saying two-year reading plan? The truth needs to be in us. I can't find that. You know that verse about divine osmosis? I can't find that one. Anyone know where that one is? You've got to read it, Right? Study it, hear it, the word of God, the Bible. We need to get the truth in us. Pretty important, right? The truth in us. We don't have the truth in us, we don't know him, but there's, there's more. Um, he takes it a step further in verse five. I missed some. Oh, I meant to read that verse. Lay, let John, uh, James 1, Lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness, The implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But then we get to the first part of verse 5, and he continues. He says, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Now, this word perfected means completed. So for the one who does keep Christ's word, uh, not just his commandments, now his word, uh, so that's more than just commandments, isn't it? The one who does that, um, he says, In this one, the love of God is perfected. So let's try and drill down on this. This totally makes sense. Um, We hold on to what he said already, that if we do not keep Christ's commandments, we can't claim to know him. The truth is not in us. And let's think about Eve again. We think about Eve again in the Garden of Eden. Let's suppose she lacked knowledge. Maybe she thought God was lying or he didn't. Want them to become gods. Knowing Christ is essential to keeping His commandments, right? You have to know them. Um, but we're drilling down now. Here's a question: Is that enough? Is it enough to know? You know, when someone gets caught out, and you say, "Well, you know, you're supposed to do this," you're like, "Yeah, I know." you get caught speeding. Do you know what the speed limit is? Yep. Think about this then. Here's a scenario for you. If you knew everything there is to know about Christ fully and completely, but you do not love him, you know, this is a A eh, love, so it's seeking what's best for another. It's Seeking his will first and foremost. So you know everything there is to know about Christ. But you don't love him. Are you going to keep his commandments? Are you going to keep his word? Think about it this way. Christ has ultimate authority. Will you obey him because he has the authority to command you? Maybe. But here's the thing. Where obey and keep are different, right? Maybe you'll obey him, perhaps like Saul, keeping the Amalek the king and the nice-looking sheep. Um, but will you keep his commandments? You know, like the goalkeeper, where you're active, you're alert, you're paying attention, you're willing to dive. Anyone play soccer? I know at least one guy does) um, Where's Ben? You goalkeeper? No, you're not a goalkeeper. Um, if you ever played soccer anyway, goalkeepers, they have to be willing to dive and they may headbutt that post and the post doesn't move, right? Your face gets it. Or even worse, I think, someone's running with the ball, they're ready to kick it and you're gonna dive to the ball? They got studs on the shoes. They're hitting that thing pretty hard. You gonna do that? Here's a, here's a better one. Is it on there? Oh yeah. Jesus said, "If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me." So we're considering this scenario where you know everything there is to know about Christ, fully, completely, but you don't love him. Are you doing that? Are you going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him? No. That takes a bit more, doesn't it, than knowing that takes love. So this is serious. Um, When you think about what it takes to keep the word of Christ, remember Saul is a negative example. It's easy to get it wrong, right? What about getting it right? Think about what it takes to keep the word of Christ. The one who does, do you see Truly, the love of God has been perfected in that one, right? Otherwise, they're going to do that. So what's John telling us? He's saying, in order for you and for me to know Christ in the manner he's describing, in order to take the word of Christ to heart, in order to receive it implanted like that verse in James, in order for the truth to become part of us, we need to love God. Why? Why? Well, he's already said, in order to keep his word, we need to know him. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And so maybe, can you see why I'm saying? How these mesh together, and it's like this cycle, this rotation, this we revolve in our lives around Christ. As we know, as we keep, as we love him, his word. And it all goes together. Maybe you don't like a cycle or rotation. Let's go non-engineering. Apologize now. I'm going to... don't know what I'm talking about. Like a dance. (laughs) Ask my wife. I will dance, but that is an act of love for me. (laughs) I am terrible. Is it a dance? You know... With Christ taking the lead. Paul, uh, John goes a little bit further. Um, in the second part of verse five into verse six. He says, by this we know that we are in him. And he's talking about abiding in him there. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so John says, by this. We say, by what? By keeping the word of Christ from the first part of verse five. Having it become part of us. That's knowing him Um, and uh, and loving him uh, by keeping the word of Christ. We know that we're in him, in Christ. That is, we know we're abiding in Christ. Our lives are revolving around Christ. And what does that look like as an outward expression? He says, we will walk as Christ walked. And he's not talking about gate. Here, G-A-I-T, he's talking about pattern of life, manner, Christ-likeness. Okay, so we've got this negative example of Saul, one of many who did not keep the word of, of God. And the question is, well, what does it take for you and I to not be like Saul? And what I've tried to say is, you know, it's what, hopefully what John is saying is knowing Christ, keeping his word, loving him. And it's like this cycle or rotation of abiding in him, remaining in fellowship with him, with ourselves revolving around Christ. And it's where we want to be. Did you realize that? But here's the news. I expose my theology now. It's where we are. You are there. If you're a believer in Christ, that is where you are. Our lives do revolve around Christ. The only question is, is this like the smushy dance, you know, at the end? Or is this like a line dance, you know, a contra dance where you keep your distance? What kind of dance is this for you? Because you're in it. If you trust in Christ, that is where you are. That is, that's the truth for you. The word of God says it. Keeping his word is a high calling. We need to take that very seriously. We need to know him, which means having his truth in us. And In order to have his truth in us, we must grow in our love for God, and by grace and in spite of ourselves, we do. That's a gap, I eh, love. So putting him, Christ, and his word first. Amen? Well, one more thing I have to say before I finish. I know I'm slightly over, but... The other guys are over too, so I think that gives me liberty. (laughs) Um, Before I finish, this is for believers. Um, What we've said, what I mean is, everything I've said so far is for believers. Where I have this like commitment before God, if I'm ever gonna speak, you're gonna hear the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a believer, well, praise the Lord. Amen? We're glad you're here. We love you. Amen? Even though many of us don't know you. Now, we love you not because we're great or special, but because we're loved. And this is a verse from later on in the epistle of John. It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And that word propitiation means a satisfactory payment. So your sin, my sin, separates us from God. The good news is Jesus came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And his death is enough. It's a satisfactory payment for your sin and mine. And so I invite you, if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ yet, I invite you to do that. To trust in him. He loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. You want a relationship with him. And I'm not using the force right here, I'm telling you. You you want, you want a relationship with him. You need it, you need him. That longing you feel in your soul is for him. He designed you, he formed you in the womb, he knows everything you're going through, he knows your darkest thoughts, he knows your deepest desires, and your longings trust him accept what he's offering you